All right, good morning. Grace, how are you this morning? Better than when we started the service? I hope so. <coughs> I hope so. I hope you know that you don't have to have it all together to come in here, that that's actually a large part of what this is for, is to help us get it back together with God's help. Uh, in the first service, as we were singing, Be Still My Soul, uh, it struck me uh, that that is definitely one of those songs that is easier sung than done, isn't it? A lot of t- Sundays, we come in this room and our souls are not still. We're not at peace and resting in God. We're worried, we're anxious, we're angry, we're unsatisfied, and all sorts of other things. And I don't know if you've been in this room and then left this room enough times that you forget to notice that what's written on the back wall right there. Every Sunday, years ago when we built this building, very intentionally, we chose that line. You can look back there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Every week you walk out of here uh, being reminded that that's why you can have a still soul. The verses of this song just had us thinking in those directions. Past, present, future. God has led you through thorny ways and he guides the future as he has your past and he's present with you right now and the the waves and the winds and all the other things still know his voice, Jesus as that is, who ruled while he dwelt below. So one of my prayers this morning is that you would have rest for your soul. Whatever you walked in the doors with this morning that causes unrest, uh, that you would walk out here with a little bit more rest. Let me pray for that as we begin. Uh, Lord, I know what's on my heart and the things that cause my soul to feel uh, unrest and anxious, uh, concerned about the future and... and uh, I don't know everyone's heart. You do, Lord. You know every concern in this room, everything that causes people to feel downcast, causes people to feel angry or discontent or impatient. I pray that this morning you would uh, remind us strongly of how good you are and how present you have promised to be for us through Christ. And we'd rest in that. And we'd remember as we leave these Uh, through these doors today that again tomorrow you will be the same for us as you were today and the next day and the next day Holy Spirit we ask that you'd help us as we consider your word because uh, we are prone to misunderstand and we're prone even when we understand to not uh, engage our hearts with what we know Uh, and so Lord I pray for both both understanding uh, and that our hearts would yield and submit to your word this morning in the ways that you you're going to call us we pray this in Jesus name Amen. Please turn to Genesis 2. Getting right into the second chapter here of Genesis. Our series is called In the Beginning. (coughs) Something's changed. The AC is blowing my pages. Hold on a second. There we go. We named the title of the, the series in the beginning because that was, is what the book is about. The first word of the book of Genesis is beginning or origin. And uh, chapters 1 through 11 lay the foundations of all that we uh, believe and know about God and about his, his plans for the world and about ourselves. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Eric Thomas suggested that we keep asking the two same questions every week of our text. And uh, I'm sure you're going to perform better than 8 a.m. service I asked, and I w- and wasn't sure if he shared those in that service. But who is God, and then who are we? Okay. Eric doesn't always preach the exact same sermon in every service, as some of you know, so he might not have asked those. But who, are, who is God? Who are we? 
every week we should be asking in these opening chapters because we're being reintroduced to the one true God. <clears throat> a couple of things that we have been uh, reminded of or, or reintroduced to uh, about God is, first of all, that he is creator. He made everything. And as Eric said, he created uh, in a way that none of us will ever create. He is the only one uniquely who can bring into existence things from nothing. Actual creation. And you and I are part of that. He brought us into existence uh, from nothing. Which means then, who are we? Well, we're the created. And that should make us really humble. That should cause us to bow before him and submit to him and his word and his wisdom and his authority. But it should also give us a real profound sense of dignity that we are made in his image. Male and female, he created us to reflect him uniquely in this world in a way that nothing else that he created does. And so we are both humbled by the fact that we are the created, but we are also exalted and, and given dignity by the fact that we are God's precious created, the crown jewel of his creation. Randy also reminded us last week of the great power of God and the great goodness of God that is seen in all that he's made. Everything he made, he declared good, and then the totality of all of it, he said, very good with us at the center of that to rule uh, and reign in this world representing him, he said was very good. And Randy said it's very good first and foremost because the God who created it is very good. He's perfect. Well, this morning we're, we're at the seventh day in this creation narrative and uh, it gives another answer, I think, to the question, who is God and who are we? Before we go there, I want to sidetrack for a second uh, an Adventure Week memory verse has been on my mind. In fact, this week there was a song a few years ago that we sang, I'm not going to sing it now, uh, to memorize the verse, and it comes from Acts 17. And it was something that Paul said, and I want to give you the context for it. Paul was in Athens, the city of Athens, and he was traveling on a missionary journey. And when he gets to the city of Athens, <coughs> he's walking around and amazed because everywhere he looks, there's idols and temples and altars and probably incense burning and flowers and food and things laid out. And there's all this religiosity. He, he notes these people are very religious. They are working hard to serve all these gods and keep them happy. But he says he's troubled in his heart because for all their religion, they don't know the one true God. What he sees is a bunch of serving and striving and seeking and, and they don't know the one true God. In fact, he sees one altar that says to the unknown God. They've just to cover their bases, made sure, well, there might be a God out there that we're not keeping happy, so let's make an altar for that God and just say unknown God until such time as we might know him. And Paul gets an opportunity to speak and he points to this altar and he says, I know him. Come here, let me tell you about this unknown God. And here's the mem where the memory verses come in. Listen to the first thing that Paul says as he's introducing these people to the unknown God. Acts 17, 24, 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and he doesn't live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Why? 
because he himself gives. Just pause right there. One of the unique things of the God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, unlike all these other so-called gods, he is the God who himself gives. And Paul says he gives us life and breath and everything. This truth is so foundational to our understanding of God and then our understanding of the gospel. That's where Paul started with them. Do you know you were not created to be God's minion? We weren't created to just be his, his busy workers to serve him and meet his needs and do the dirty work that he's above and to keep him happy like the little yellow guys in Despicable Me. He made us in his image actually to bless us that we might know him and enjoy him and all that he's made. He himself gives. The God of the Bible is unbelievably generous and self-giving. He brings us into existence because he knows that for us to know him is awesome. And we have to get this right. And I think the foundations for this truth that we so quickly get upside down is laid right here in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. That the God of the Bible, the one true God, he is the giver. We are the receivers. And it will always be that way. Let me read our, our verses. We have three, and I'm going to, actually four, I'm going to skip back to verse 31 at the end of chapter one. <coughs> Excuse me. Genesis 1, 31. And God saw everything that he'd made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That's our text this morning, but it's gonna, we're going to have to spill out into the, to the rest of the Bible here to, to fill in some things. But I have four points this morning. I usually like to tell you all up front. I'm going to be different this morning. I'm going to tell you one at a time. You're going to have to wait for them as they come. But there's four. So no, if you don't get four, I either ran out of time or I forgot, but I won't. Number one is just right here in our text. Point number one this morning is this. We were created to rest in God. That's why he made us. That was his purpose for us. His grand purpose is that we would rest in God. The, the whole of our life, I think, in, when we look at the four things in our verses that it says God did, and then ask, what are the implications of this for us? It is this, we were made to rest in him. We were made to utterly, completely, trustingly depend upon him forever in all things as the great provider and sustainer and blesser, as the giver of life and breath and everything. Let's look at the four things that it says God did. They're, they're sort of in pairs. The first two, God finished and he rested. Twice it says he finished. Verse one, what did he finish? The heavens, everything out there, the earth, everything down here under us, and all the host of him. Everything that all those places are filled with. Everything. He finished them. Verse 2, he finished his work that he'd done in creating all of them. 
I don't think it means that on the seventh day he, he put the last final touches on it and concluded his work. The point is that the seventh day was marked by not creating, inactivity, no more creative work happening on this seventh day, this, this final God's day. Um, it's not a work day. It's a ceasing day. The second word literally means ceased. He rested, it says twice. He wasn't worn out. He didn't need a breather. Creation didn't exert, uh, wasn't exerting to God. It didn't, it didn't tire him in any way. No, he simply ceased creating. Verse 2, it says he ceased from all his work. Make sure we understand that's not like the God of deism what, who they would believe God ceased from all his work, period. Made it all, wound it up, threw it out there, and then removes himself from it and does no more work at all. No, God is sustaining, uh, sustaining us right now by the word of his power. Everything continues to exist by, because the, he upholds it. And he's been personally involved and relationally involved in the lives of people from the beginning. And he is today. So God is at work in all kinds of ways. But here it says he ceased from, verse 3, all his work he'd done in creation. So his creating work is done. It's finished. Why? It's probably an obvious rhetorical question. Why would God finish and cease from creating? Because he was done. He was done. I, I picture an artist. I'm a bad artist because I never know when to be done with drawing or painting something, probably because it never looks right. <laughs> the eyes are funny or the hands look weird or whatever, and you keep working at it. But a good artist sits back and painting, gets to the final, starts putting the last touches on there and stands back and like this and Finally, a, a good artist knows when to put the brush down, right? Goes, that's it right there. Puts the brush down, no more painting. That is exactly as I intended it. And it's like God right here with creation comes to the end of the sixth day and he says, that is exactly how I intend it to be. Perfect, sufficient, complete. John Calvin in his some commentary on uh, Genesis on these verses. He says, this world was in every sense completed as if the whole house were well supplied and filled with its furniture so that nothing should be wanting or lacking to its suitable abundance. I love that, that imagery. Uh, creation was fully furnished. All of creation was turnkey for us ready to be immediately enjoyed. It was turnkey for God. The only thing left for God to do on the seventh day was for himself to enjoy all that he had created according to its purposes. And that includes us. And then the second two things it says God did are how we see his delight and satisfaction that everything is just exactly as he intended it, not lacking anything. He blesses the seventh day and he makes it holy. He sets it apart. He says, this state now of finishedness is different than all that, those other days. This is blessed and holy. And let's ask, what exactly is God blessing and making holy here? Because it's easy for us, if you know the Bible and you've read the Bible and you know some of what's to come that we're going to talk about later here in this sermon, to import some of that back into these opening verses. But notice two things that aren't mentioned here. One, there's no talk here about a day of rest for people to observe. That's going to come later. God is going to create a Sabbath day and call Israel to, to observe it and not do work on it. But right here, God's just talking about God. 
And he blessed, he finished and rest, and he blessed and, and he made holy this day. And notice a second uh, distinct thing here. Of all these other days that came before, the pattern stopped. Did you notice that? At the end of each day, how does it wrap up? And there was evening and there was morning the first day or the fourth day or the sixth day. And notice here, we get to this seventh day and the formula has stopped. There is no evening and morning the the seventh day. The seventh day seems unique and distinct in this way. I think because of this. I think that God's seventh day that he blesses is the finishedness of it. Listen to, uh, this is uh, A.G. Shed. Oh, let me go here. A.G. Shedd, he's an Old Testament professor down in, in Sydney at Moore College, uh, and, and it writes, I wrote, wrote this commentary on Sabbath rest and the theme of rest through the Bible. And speaking of God's rest here, he says, God seems to be blessing the fact of his creation, its completeness and its ongoing existence. In other words, when God sanctified the seventh day because on it he ceased creating, he wasn't celebrating or commemorating days one to six, but declaring this new state of not creating to be blessed and holy, the finishedness, this state of everything perfect, fully furnished, this is blessed and holy. There's nothing lacking. Creation is pregnant now with promise for God's people who are made in God's image. This is the perfect place for us to enjoy God and trust him and rest in him and live with him forever. I think the seventh day is the the day in which Adam and Eve now enter into to live with God in this holy, blessed state of finished. So we were made to rest in God from the beginning. Here's point two. Here's the problem. It's not very hard. We are all really bad at resting in God. We are terrible at resting in God. Adam and Eve were bad at this. That's why sin entered in in the first place. Essentially, when they turned against God's good word and they took matters into their own hands, they were failing to rest in God. God had said, I have given you everything you need everything you need to eat, everything for life and flourishing, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have a day. Enjoy it and me in it. And they come to this point and here's this fruit. Even the good boundary was part of God's blessing for them and goodness and part of what they needed. They needed to remember who was God and who wasn't and to trust him. And so when Satan speaks that lie and tempts them to think maybe insufficient, Maybe God has not provided everything. Maybe there's still something lacking that you need. And it's this fruit on this tree that he drew a line in front of. And that distrust enters their heart and their mind. And they say, yeah, maybe. It's a failure ultimately to rest in God, to live in trusting, dependent obedience to God. And they take matters into their own hands. And the curse comes as a result. (coughs) Excuse me. And the resulting curse breaks that perfect state of peace and restfulness by pain entering and difficulty entering and suffering and death being part of the picture now. (coughs) As Romans 1 says, God subjected the creation now to futility, which I even think is a gracious part of the curse. Because in subjecting creation now to futility, we are reminded constantly living in a fallen world that apart from God, there is no rest. If we want a world without God, it will be a difficult world that will end in death. And so even the suffering and the pain of the curse 
are a merciful pointer back to God to say we were made to rest and rely in God. So even in your suffering, turn to God in your suffering. Return to him. So failure to rest in God was how sin entered in, and that inclination is in every one of us because we're born of Adam and Eve. We are human. We are sinful. And we struggle to rest in God. But God hadn't given up. God is relentless in his purpose that people he made uh, will rest in him and no perfect rest. He's not going to give up. And so his plan is this. He takes Abraham, one man, and he says, I am going to bless you. I will make of you a great nation. And through you and that nation, I will bring rest and blessing back to the entire world. And Abraham, when your people become a great nation, I'm going to give them a great land of rest. And I'm going to place them there. And I'm going to make an agreement with them that as long as they rest in me and walk in my commands and trust me and trust in my uh, work of atonement that I'm going to make for them, the sacrifices I'm going to set up for them, as long as they rest in me according to my prescription, I will be their God, your, their God and I will bless them and they will be fruitful and multiply and all the surrounding nations will see Israel and say, their God is the one true God who really gives rest. And that comes to be. Israel becomes a nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joseph, through this amazing, miraculous, uh, and, and crazy plan of God, gets Joseph to Egypt, and then the people of uh, Israel to Egypt, and they grow into this great nation that becomes enslaved under Pharaoh. And they're making bricks, day after day and suffering and crying out to the God of Abraham uh, year after year and God finally the time comes where he says it's time and he sends Moses and he shows up and by God's mighty hand not Moses's he plays the, the ultimate game of say uncle with Pharaoh through 10 plagues will you let them go nope all right now will you let them go Nope. How about now? How about now? And he finally brings Pharaoh to the point where he says, I give. Get out of here. Take your people and be gone. And Moses leads God's people out, headed toward this land of rest that he had promised way back to Abraham. And they begin get, getting out, and they get to the Red Sea that many of you know the story. And Pharaoh changes his mind, and he sends the armies out after, say, bring them back changed my mind and Israel sees them on the horizon and the dust cloud and the armies are approaching and do they say God's got this remember the plagues no they immediately say what did God just bring us out here to kill us here he couldn't have done that in Egypt God patiently mercifully says to them through Moses he says fear not stand firm See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Got to get it right. He will work for you. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you, and you can underline this in your Bible. You have only to be silent. That's your job, Israel. You just stand here and be silent and watch. Trust me. Rest in me. And he does. He parts the sea. It's described like walls of water on either side. Dry ground, all of Israel goes through. It's not till the last child's foot steps onto dry ground on the other side and then God closes the sea, wipes out Pharaoh's army. And it says there in Exodus 14, Israel saw this 
with their eyes. They saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. They saw the horses and the chariots and the, and the bodies. And they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. All right, now we're getting somewhere. Now maybe they'll rest in God, right? No. The very next scene, <coughs> they're, they're thirsty. They get two or three days out. Water starts looking scarce. They're living a nomadic lifestyle on the way to the land of rest and they're getting thirsty and they panic and they start grumbling about against God. And God mercifully, patiently provides water in a miraculous way for them, shows them once again, you can rest in me. And he, and he says to them this. He says, he says uh, to Moses, um, oh, I'm sorry, I, I missed something. Let me go back a minute. They get to the other side of the Red Sea and when they see all, the, all Pharaoh's army wiped out, Miriam, Moses' sister, leads them all in this triumphant victory song about what God just did. And the end of the song is, you, God, will bring the people you've purchased in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. They sing, you, God, you're gonna give us rest. Hooray! And then they grumble about water. And then he gives them clean water and he says to them again, he's so patient, listen, he says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. That's like saying, if you will actively rest in me, listen to me diligently, and you do what's right in his eyes, and you give ear to his commandments to keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. I will keep you healthy and safe even though you're in the wilderness. Trust me. Next scene, we need food. They get hungry. Food starts to get scarce. God tests them, the scriptures say, to see, will they trust me? Will they rest in me? No. They grumble against him. Listen to what they say about God. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Here's their faulty memory. When we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. In other words, hey, remember all that rest we enjoyed back in Egypt? Wasn't that great? <laughs> they were slaves. God says, all right. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. I'm going to feed you from the skies. You and the people shall go out every day, gather a day's portion, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And here's the two ways that God seeks to test them in the way he's going to give this manna, this bread, every day. Number one, he says, day one, day two, day three, six days, go out that day, collect just what you need for that day. No more. Don't save some extras in a Ziploc for the next day. I want you to know that I will never miss a delivery. Trust me in that. Don't collect any more than you need. So they trust him, right? No, they save extras. And the next morning, everyone who saved leftovers opened up their, their bag and went, it's, fi it's filled with worms and it's stinking and rotten. It didn't last. Lesson learned? No. The other way that this is a test is he says, on the sixth day, he says, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest on the seventh day, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So today on the sixth day, bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that's left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. 
what they weren't supposed to do the other six days. Do that on the sixth day, he says. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it didn't stink. And there were no worms. God proved himself faithful. He can be trusted. He will meet your needs on the day that he says don't work. You know what they do? On that seventh day, they fill up on, a, you know, the day-old manna, and that was delicious. And you imagine they're sitting around. Some of them said, hey, I'll we'll go out and look for more manna. They go out on the seventh day, some of them, looking for more. And God says, what are you doing? They just can't rest in me. They just can't trust in me. Next scene. We get to Sinai, Mount Sinai, and God gives the law and arranges this covenant now with Israel that he gives them through Moses. And one of the laws, one of the ten commands, has to do with the Sabbath. The fourth command is this. Catch up with myself here. (coughs) No, that was the last one, right? There he goes. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or even the sojourner who's within your gates. Are you clear? No work. This is to be a new rhythm and pattern of grace in your life, Israel, he says. Every seventh day you will not work. Let me find my notes here. And he gives the first reason why they're to do this. This rhythm of grace is to be a weekly reminder of this. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. In other words, Israel, let this weekly day of rest remind you that from the beginning, this is the way it works. He provides for you. You rest in him. Let this one day every week where you rest from work remind you that you are to rest in God every day of the week. Every seventh day, remember, you were made to rest in God. And then we get one more place. Deuteronomy 5, they get through the wilderness and the next generation is about to enter the land and God gives them a refresher of all the laws through Moses. And when he comes to the Sabbath command, he adds another reminder. So not just remember that God is the giver God and you are the ones who are to be blessed by him and rest in him. He says also every week as you observe Sabbath, you will remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So let this weekly rhythm also remind you that though you were slaves, helpless under Pharaoh, he by his mighty hand brought you out and planted you in a land of rest. Every Sabbath, remember those trees you're eating from, those vines you're eating from, you didn't plant those. You just moved in. That house you're living in, those city walls that you're safe behind, you didn't build those. God fully furnished this land and you are resting in it. Let this weekly day of rest remind you of the rest that you are living in now as God's people. Okay, just a pause. Here's a question that we don't have time for this morning, but it's a great question. As Christians now, what do we do with this fourth commandment to observe the Sabbath? Is this still binding on us? Are we supposed to set aside one day to do no work of any kind? Don't don't even, you know, what do we do with this command? I'm gonna point you to a resource. I know a couple of weeks ago we said there's gonna be resources and some of you went and looked and that page wasn't on our website. That was my fault. They're there now, so you can go find them online uh, with this link that I added to a sermon by Kevin DeYoung called The Festive Day of Rest. 
It's a great sermon. He really thoroughly and biblically answers this question. Christians, what do we do with this fourth command? So I want to point you there. You can read it. There's a transcript, or you can just listen to it. So here's Israel, and they're resting in the land. Now they've got a command to remind them every week that they are currently to be resting in God in the land. That's why he rescued them from slavery. And do they? No, the history of Israel, by and large, is a miserable pattern of failure to keep Sabbath and bigger picture, failure to keep all of the law for that matter. They're constantly profaning the Sabbath in one way or another. Sometimes Israel profanes the Sabbath or treats it as not holy, while observing it very carefully and fastidiously, but meanwhile, their hearts are all far from God and the rest of their life shows it and their Sabbath observance is actually hollow and a sham and they profane God's Sabbath. They're not really resting, even though they're going through the motions one day a week. But often, probably more frequently, and sadly, led by Israel's leaders and kings, the whole nation leaves all of God's law and disregards not only the Sabbath but God himself and runs off after idols and and seeks their rest in the gods of the other nations around them. It happens again and again and again through generation after generation and finally God says enough. If you won't rest in me, in this place, in this land of rest that I furnished for you, I'm going to take you out of this land of rest. And he sends in Babylon And Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, destroys the city, hauls most of them off into exile far away uh, to the land of Babylon where once again they're oppressed and they live in exile for years. But God is relentless in his plan to have a people living in the place of rest under his care who are actively resting in him. And he hasn't given up on Israel yet. And finally, when, it, when in his timing, he sends them back. He puts leaders in place like Cyrus, king of Persia, who gives them the, the permission to go back in the land and even resources them to build a new temple and build a city. And Jerusalem uh, is rebuilt and Israel is living in the land again. They've been given another chance. And we have the book of Nehemiah that one of our women's Bible studies is beginning to study um, right now. And in Nehemiah 13, they finally got it all rebuilt. What a blessing God has led us back in. And you know what they're doing? They're doing business and working on the Sabbath again. And Nehemiah wants to pull his hair out. And he says to them, did not your fathers act this way? Don't you remember why you were in Babylon? Because you wouldn't rest. You've been given rest. He says, didn't God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Ah! One last scene for Israel. Fast forward to when Jesus comes. What's happened since then? Well, Jesus shows up and Israel's leaders have turned this one command to rest into the most burdensome command probably of all of them probably initially for very good reasons. They got it from Nehemiah. God really is serious about us keeping Sabbath. He really means it. Let's make sure we don't break it. What are we going to do? Let's make sure we don't work. Well, what's work? Well, let's make sure that we define everything that's work and then everything that sort of sounds and smells like work and then everything that might lead you to doing something that sounds and smells like work. And they created this massive list of, of rules that surrounded the Sabbath law to just make sure that by accident nobody uh, breaks the Sabbath. And they've turned, it's just crazy. You'd think the one command out of the 10 that we would have no problem with is, hey, don't work. 
Wouldn't you think that's the easy, got that one done every day, check, you know. And no, they turned the one law that's supposed to be for their rest and their enjoyment of God, and they upside down turn it to be the most burdensome command that nobody can keep. In fact, they start accusing Jesus of breaking Sabbath. He's keeping Sabbath, healing people on the Sabbath, things that are perfectly appropriate for the day where we rest in God and remember that he's our healer, he's our provider. And they accuse him of breaking Sabbath, all the while he says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You are. And you've put this huge burdensome weight on the weight of the backs of all the people and it's crushing them. We are really bad at resting in God, aren't we? As we've kind of gotten this refresher of Israel, do you see yourself in these different tendencies? The ways that we just don't seem to be able to rest in God. Sometimes we fail to rest in God when we just ignore him and we just live life off our own gas tank, our own strength, our own cleverness, our own resources, and we just put him out of mind and we get on with business. It's a failure to rest in God. It's a failure to rest in God that he says, every one of you who goes that route, you will wear out. Jeremiah 2, God gives this metaphor for that sort of living. He says, living like that is committing two evils. One, you're forsaking the fountain of life, as foolish as that is. And second, you're digging out your own wells that are leaky and have holes and they can't hold water. That's what that sort of life is like. You gotta keep pumping water back into it and filling it back up because it's leaking out as fast as you can fill it. That's what that sort of life apart from God is like. And we all do this. We all fail to rest in God when we assume we know better than God and we step around his commands or we redraw the lines of his good commands because we know better, because we feel like it, because our hearts desire something and God has said no or we don't want to do something that God has said yes. We say, no, we'll redraw the lines the way we like, thank you. We'll find our rest that way. And, And there's immediate pleasure sometimes when we redraw the lines but eventually that rest spoils. It doesn't last. And we fail to rest in God when we turn the intention of his good commands upside down and we turn them back into ways that we're seeking to secure favor with God and serve him as if he needed our human hands doing his work for him. And we live and we keep his commands in a way because, you know, God made these nice commands, so I'm gonna do you a favor, God, and keep them. That'll make you happy. And that's not resting in God either. God help us. You have not rested one day completely in God in your life. I have not rested fully in God, trusting obedience and dependence one day of my entire life, including today. But God did help us. He sent Jesus. That is why God sent his son. God the son took on flesh and dwelt among us so he might ransom us and do a new creation work. Jesus came to bring us back into rest. He arrives on the scene. He never breaks Sabbath. He perfectly keeps that and all the other law. All through his life, he lives trusting the Father at every step, obeying the Father's command, doing the Father's will, honoring and glorifying God the Father with his entire life, all the way up to his very last breath on the cross. And you know what he said to the people who were carrying around those heavy burdens that the leaders had tied up and placed on their back? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. Sorry, let me go back. I want you to see all the words of that. I, I skipped the second part. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why is Jesus' yoke easy, and why is his burden light? Because he did all the pulling. That's what he did at the cross. That's what he gave up his last breath and completed a perfect life of rest in God that we've all failed in. And then he dies in our place to take away the guilt of all of our unrest and all of our distrust of God and all of the sin that has been produced from that. Jesus pays for it all. In the same way that God finished his creation work and rested from it and then he blessed the seventh day and made it holy, Jesus finishes and rests from his redeeming work when he's crucified and buried and risen. And then he invites us into it. At Easter, we sing the hymn, Christ the Lord has risen today, which we should sing other times than Easter, shouldn't we? Because Christ the Lord has risen today, too. But this verse came to my mind. I want, I want us to sing it. We didn't sing it first service. I think it's more fun when we sing it. It's the verse, it starts with this. <clears throat> Love's redeeming work is done. It goes, Love's redeeming work is done. Hallelujah. Fought the fight, the battle won. Hallelujah. Death in vain forbids him rise. Hallelujah. In this line, Christ has opened. Alleluia. What has he opened? Paradise, rest, what he intended for us from the beginning. And his redeeming work is done and the battle is won and that's why he can offer this to us. Point number four is this. After Jesus perfectly rested in God, he now invites all of us, any of us, to enter into that rest and rest in God forever in him. Hebrews is a book in the New Testament. It's basically one long sermon exalting love's redeeming work that Christ has finished. His once and for all sacrifice that paid forever for sin and secured a way for us to re-enter the paradise and the rest that we've all lost. And in Hebrews 3, he's working this argument and he says, when you come to rest in Christ, place your belief and trust for forgiveness in what Christ did on your behalf. When you do that, Hebrews 3.13 says, you come to share in Christ. And a little while later, it says, well, <coughs> what does that mean? What are we sharing in when we share in Christ? Rest. He says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. A few verses before it says, we who have believed enter that rest. We enter that rest not by working hard, but by resting from our works. All of our empty works that can't earn us favor with God. We rest from them and we believe in the one who did do all those works in our place perfectly. That's how we enter rest with God. Does that bring you an incredible sigh of relief? I had a moment in my office chair in Fullerton on Wednesday. 
I had spent two days and I was working through all this stuff and thinking about Israel's history and identifying so often with it and those tendencies. And I got to this point where I was thinking about that verse that we just sang from that hymn about redeeming work and Christ opened paradise. And the Lord just in this moment made me so clearly aware of my, my utter inability to rest in him. And at the very same time, the, the smile of God on me because Christ finished the redeeming work. And it got just sucker punched me. I just, about five minutes, tears in my chair. No one, no one in there watching. And just overwhelmed with this sense of rest that Christ has brought me. And said, God, please help me not to lose that rest, which I do. I've, I've lost that sense of rest every day and we have to keep coming back again and again. So as we finish right now, I want to ask you, have you entered that rest? These things we're talking about, this God, are you coming to see right now this morning the God that you have understood is not the real one true God. It's this gracious giving God who didn't just give us everything in the first place to enjoy, but even when we all failed, gave his son so that we might have that rest again. Do you understand this morning that you are as guilty of not resting in God as every one of us? And maybe today for the first time you finally give and you are gonna rest from all your work and allow Christ's work to stand in your place. It's simple. You pray. You say, God, forgive me in Jesus' name. I rest from all my striving and trying. I could never do it anyway. Forgive me because of what Jesus did. Enter into my life, Holy Spirit, and help me begin to learn how to rest in you. And one day when Jesus comes back, receive me into that rest forever. Would you come talk to me this morning after this service? If you did that now or want to do that, I would love to pray with you. And for the rest of you who have done that at some point in your life, and you have lived maybe a year, maybe 10 years, maybe 50 years, following Christ, trusting in Christ, you need the same words that Jesus gave. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest because we're bad at it. You need it this morning. Okay, take one minute before we close with a song and pray. Talk to the Lord silently in your heart. What do you need to talk to him about? God, thank you for this glimpse that Genesis 2 gives us of how amazingly good and giving you are and how the rest of the scriptures keep re reiterating to us how patient you are, how relentless you are in your desire to bless us even when we will not be blessed. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and you died for the joy set before you. You endured the cross. You obeyed the Father. You honored him in that. You showed us what it's like, what it looks like to live a life of rest. And God, I pray that you would help us follow that example by your spirit and live lives that right now in a fallen world are increasingly um, characterized by trust, dependence, obedience, faithfulness in you because you can be trusted. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and that you will be the same for us tomorrow. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.